And that's Bert's a... That, that's a Poltergeist, broken chair. Poltergeist. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Film File. This is episode 12. And you know what happens in episode 12. All the stuff that's happened in the other episodes. This is The Film Show by Film Geeks for Film Geeks. And as ever, I'm joined by... Andy Meakin. Scott. And myself, Lee Ford. As ever, with our shows, let's start by what's happening in the news. Andy, give us the news. Couple of exciting pieces of news this week. Most exciting, literally just broke this morning, that Knives Out sequel has been given a green light at Lionsgate. Ryan Johnson's been speculating. He wants to develop it. He wants to do a franchise. He'd love to explore the same kind of concept going forwards. But this is the first time we've had a confirmation. Yep, that's happening. It's greenlit now. We mentioned it on the show, uh, I think, last last week, on our, yeah. our last, last episode. Uh, and from what we know, um, there's so much speculation, and it is purely speculative. It's going to be based around Daniel Craig character. And yeah, that accent. It, it's not confirmed that he's returning yet, but come on, Benoit Blanc has to reappear. I have seen someone online today say, like, wouldn't it be great if he's got a twin brother called ben, Benoit Noir? Oh, there you go. <laughs> or did his last name be different rather than different mothers, <laughs> fathers? I don't yeah. know. But yeah, I'm excited like that can happen in film, Scott. Yeah, 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 yeah we, we said we said when we were mentioning it last time that it'd be exciting to see this become like a modern day Poirot that it's a different murder mystery that he's solving each time. And I, I've said that like I would love him to do a different accent each time that he does it, just to really have fun with it, because that film, it was fun. It was great. It was my film of the year when we, we talked about it. I absolutely loved Knives Out. I thought it was was amazingly directed. I thought it had a great cast. It had a, a knowing sense of itself. It was deeply political at the same time, but but subtly so. It just worked on every level. I I. I I can't rate it enough. That was fantastic. There's some great memes circulating at the moment with um, different title names for the sequels of the franchise, all based around the Fast and Furious ones. Oh, right. So you've got Two Knives, Two Furious. What was it? Knives Out, Tokyo Stab. Yeah, that was my personal <laughs> favourite. <laughs> etc. etc. But yeah, I, I'm really excited for it. I mean, Knives Out was very specific a title for that family because the fascination with the knife yeah. emblems, etc. It wouldn't surprise me if they adopt a different naming oh, title. Yeah, it was, it was two out for that. Guns down. Two knives, two out. With, with this and the sequel and, and obviously Kenneth Branagh tackling Poirot again, do you think with the whodunit to like back? The, I, I think the, they're making a good headway to come back. I mean, you know, Branagh did a great uh, Orient Express and I can't wait to see what he does with uh, Death on the Nile. Yeah. He's done the classic ones and to get like a modern day new franchise as well, it bodes well that we might start to see, you know, all... Those old like who done us. I mean, we've got Clue in the pipeline say, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've done, they've worked very well on TV, and the the BBC have done a, a great selection of of, of classic Agatha Christie uh, uh, who done it, and I think they were they were so impressive. They updated them, they they played with them, they made a very, very harsh. I don't think there was one this Christmas, but there's one coming out in a couple of weeks on the BBC with Rufus Sewell. Name yeah. escapes me of, of what what program it is, but the, the BBC have done some some fantastic ones. So uh, I don't think the appetite's ever gone away. It's it sort of drifted away from the big screen, that's for certain. But yeah, you're right, Andy. There's there's a, a whole there's a whole who done it waiting to happen yeah. out there. I mean, you know, the the next Sherlock Holmes film went into pre production a few months ago. Like script is getting finalised, etc. So you know, it is a time that all he needs those... a hit, doesn't he? That that Downey Junior. Oh, He's but, not had a hit since. Well, he he will do after the after Doolittle. <laughs> 
Um, so let's move away from the whodunit and go on to who's going to do it. Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. Scott Derrickson, as we reported a few episodes ago. He left for creative differences. left for creative differences. And now Sam Raimi is in talks to be um, helming. You know, during that episode, I was thinking about that just before we recorded and we were talking about who do you think would, could helm it. Uh, I think I said Josh Boone. Uh, I, I never thought of Sam Raimi, who is by far the best choice for it. He's, he's proved that he's a Steve Ditko fan from, from the Spider-Man films. And he, he still, to this day, has made, in my opinion, the second greatest superhero film with Spider-Man 2. He's got a love for that age of Marvel, that 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 early Stanley Steve Ditko style. He's just the right guy. He's the right guy across the board who just gets the right side of horror movies, the right side of fun. He's he's trusted by Marvel for the work he's previously done. I really hope that we get Sam Raimi. And and I, I he's a guy's work that I've I've loved everything he's done, even the misfires. I I really enjoy Sam Raimi's work. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a bit of a fantasy cast, though, isn't it? You wouldn't go to him because it seems such... Yeah, it does. It seems like the obvious choice. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of the reverse of what happened with Ant-Man. You get, like, that fantasy auteur-led piece, and then in that one, he left for Peyton Royce, and in this one, we're getting the reverse. It's really interesting. It's a, it's history of films. I mean, everyone's been saying, like, oh, Derrickson was kicked off because, like, he wants to go a horror approach. No one knows exactly what no, this is. Yeah. And it's um, Marvel. But we they've know. gone straight to a director who's predominantly known for horrors. Yeah. But he has helmed four comic book movies. And he's nice. And I'm including Darkman in, as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and that, Darkman for me, is the one that is the perfect kind of feel for like if they want to do a horror stroke superhero film. Because yeah. his twisted camera work is like cracking visions and things like that. I can really see aspects of Doctor Strange playing well in that kind of format. And he's, he's good with a big budget. He did the uh, Great and Powerful Oz. Yeah. Which had its problems, but it, it certainly didn't like in, in spectacle and, and, and screen style was fantastic. It was, some of it was classic Raimi. Absolutely perfect choice. Who is Bruce Campbell playing there? Well, that will always be the question. Uh, get back, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Answers on Twitter, please. He'll be one of the cosmic entities from um, the Marvel yeah. Universe. <laughs> Sticking with Disney aspects, because Marvel and Disney. There's so much anti-Disney news out there. Everyone seems to be turning on Disney left, right and centre and coming up with these opinions of like they hold too much power and they're controlling the industry, etc. So it's refreshing when the CEO, Bob Iger, comes out and despite the fact that they're in the perfect place to be able to say films get shown at the cinema for a month and then they go onto our Disney Plus service because we want to maximise that, he's insisting that they're going to stick with the 90-day window. um, Some other distributors over the past few years have tried to push that. Famously, on one of the um, Night at the Museum films, it got pulled from UK cinemas uh, after one week because they wanted to release it within within 10 weeks uh, for the home release. And so the cinema change just went, fine, we're pulling it, stopping showing it. Disney could easily, with the power they've got, turn around and dictate the terms to the cinemas. But he respects the cinema. He thinks that things should be experienced on the cinema. And he said that they're going to stick with that 90-day window before it even thinks about going on to Disney+. Plus. Two things about Disney while, while we're at it. One is whenever you're the top dog at the moment. And, and Disney now is, is not just a, a studio, as you think of. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like an umbrella company with these, these other almost independent production companies underneath, like Pixar, Marvel, who, who hang on to Disney. But they are... 
to some extent their own identity and, and fit into that very well. So when you're top dog, you you somebody you're going to start taking a kick in, and uh, yeah. and and Disney are the target right now. They have hit after hit after hit, and their failings are are a lot smaller. I know Paramount is marting at the moment for a hit because uh, one of the films we're going to be talking about in our review section nosedived at, at the box office over the weekend. But Disney are top dogs, so yes, they're right for a kick in. The other thing is, uh, it was a Super Bowl on Sunday. I didn't stay up, not bothered, not a big Super Bowl fan. Don't get it. <laughs> Don't understand it. That's why I'm a film geek. But did you see the trailer for uh, Disney Plus with the uh, shots of Marvel? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And didn't it just whet your appetite that? little bit more one division for me that's that's what i've got my eye focused on i love that whole she's creating this artificial world because she can't accept that it he's not there I crazy love, i world love the look of it tv series wasn't it there was sort of the isle of lucy look there was an 80s sitcom look to it and then there was of course uh, uh the fact that it's it hinted at uh being in some other world and of course uh, uh falcon and uh winter soldier looks fantastic yeah. looks like a movie so it's the Loki and the WandaVision ones which look like they're going to be feeding directly into the movies going forwards because if we're going multiverse and we're going yeah. for fractured dimensions, her meddling with reality in her show and Loki mm. playing his little games is clearly going to be the trigger that sparks all the opening up of the multiverse. It's very exciting. Has anybody else heard this thing that uh, Kevin Feige, and I always think we should cue some sort of Mosaic music there. Feige. Yes. <laughs> Has talked about bringing the Defenders back. Anybody? Oh, I've not seen that. Uh, whether that's going to be the TV cast, but there's he's apparently there's a rumour going around he's, uh, he wants to bring the Defenders back. I hope that they go with, with the TV Netflix cast, um, especially for Jessica Jones and, and Daredevil. And, uh, I did Cage. read something that there's two sort of untitled Marvel Disney Plus projects as yet unremarked upon. So that could fit in quite mm. well with that rumour as well. Uh, Miss Marvel's been cast, apparently. Yes, I'm keeping my eye out for any promotion, because I, I love Miss Marvel. I, I think I've mentioned this on an earlier show, that I adore the comic of it. I find it strange now that we can refer to earlier shows. <laughs> <laughs> apparently that must mean at some point we have a flashback episode. <laughs> uh, also, the, the talking while we're still on Marvel, and I'm just interrupting Andy's news flow at this stage, is that the all the Hulu projects, bar two, seem to be dead now. There were several Hulu animations. Howard the Duck with Kevin Smith was was mentioned, uh, Tigra. But Lucifer, not Lucifer, uh, Hellstrom, still going. Yeah. And one other, I can't remember which one. That, was it Hitmonkey? Possibly. There was one other that was staying. Uh, Dazzler was another show that had been mentioned. Uh, so those, out of that slew of uh, the Hulu-created Marvel TV series, there seems to be only two remaining. Rick Moranis. Whatever happened to Rick Moranis? And that sounds like a Netflix documentary yeah. right there, doesn't it? Blew up his kid and he never got a job again. Yeah, you see, that's the, that, that, apparently that is a crime. <laughs> <laughs> so Rick Moranis kind of disappeared from the public eye in the mid-90s. Uh, he stepped away from like, he had quite, quite a lot of projects. There was a time when he was on screen pretty much every year in something, either as a support role or in a lead in, like, your little shops of horrors. And, you know, obviously the Honey I Shrunk blew up. Yes, and baseballs he was there. Yeah, yeah he, Ghostbusters too. He was everywhere, and then he vanished, and he retreated from the public eye. He's done voiceover work over the years, but he's never come back. He was even offered, like, a chance for Ghostbusters Afterlife to reprise his role in that and turned it down. News has come in that he's possibly going to be coming 
back to the big screen. Because we already mentioned this, and I want to say it again, a previous episode, it's to do with the reboot of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, the Joe Johnston directed Shrunk, it's called now. So they're shrinking the title down. That's, is that because millennials can't say the full title? <laughs> Probably, yes. I mean, we struggle. <laughs> it's now looking that he's potentially going to be making his big screen presence back into that film. And in addition, it's rumoured that it's not going to be made for Disney Plus anymore and they're going for a big screen outing. Oh, they've got faith in it. Um, Joe Johnston behind the lens. I mean, let's, let's be honest, it, it deserves the spectacle of the big screen. Yeah, well, that's yeah. Awesome. so it, it's exciting for people like us who like remember Rick Moranis and like it was quite he important was, to he us. Was huge, yeah. yeah, yeah. So to see someone who just basically vanished from all public life for so long to suddenly like be coming back into back into our minds and back into our thoughts, I can't wait. I'm Did, hoping that he signs on that line and we do get to see him. Let's hope so. Did anyone ever remember a Rick Moranis film called Strange Brew? I've got vague memories of it. Just check it out. I'll say no. (laughs) And we'll talk about that on a future show. But with that good news, obviously there's been some sad news this week. After 103 years on this earth, uh, the actor Kirk Douglas passed away. Uh, Really an end of an era of that golden age of of movie star, really. Uh, Him, Burt Lancaster, uh, Jimmy Stewart, all from that that period. Uh, A fantastic leading man amazingly charismatic just in how he looked he was he had a charismatic look to him of course the acting dynasty of, of his of his son michael carrying it on a real presence uh a libertarian or um, you know he was in, involved in, in human rights projects he had a blacklisted uh, writer make sure that he, he was credited for the script of spartacus i've done a couple of radio pieces this week about the passing of, of kurt douglas and i think you know, lots of people said, who is the modern-day equivalent of Kirk Douglas? There isn't. No. He could play anything. I've seen him play light comedy. I've seen him play ridiculous comedy. Um, you know, he was uh, the lead in the, probably one of the first films that I ever saw was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Disney film, where he was fantastic. He, he sang and he danced, uh, as well as being a, a, a leading man. Uh, films like Ace in the Hole, which was just brilliant, my favourite Kurt Douglas. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't, no. Get a chance to see, he plays a, a newspaper journalist who perpetuates uh, a story for his own needs and he, he's fantastic. But yeah, it's, it's sadly, sadly gone, but 103, what, what an innings. Yeah, absolutely, you know, he's, he's outlasted entire, the other entire generations of filmmakers. It's, it's just extraordinary and uh, yeah. uh, an amazing. I'm thing. the same as you in that my first experience of him was being taken to see 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on yeah, one of its reruns of the cinema. Film. And I absolutely loved that film yeah. as a kid. And as I've grown up, I've spotted him in so many films and been drawn to films because of his name. I mean, even like schlock sci-fi, like Saturn 3. Yes. Which is not a great film by any stretch of imagination, but I love pulpy sci-fi and that is pulpy sci-fi. It is. And, Final um, Countdown. Yeah. Remember that one? I do. And uh, Holocaust 3000, the, um, hey, we want to do The Omen too. Yes. Uh, which is, not, again, not a good film, but he's just great in it. And it's it's well worth checking out just to, if you, if you like B-movie kind of films, they're real B-movie kind of plot lines. And also not to forget Brian De Palma's The Fury. I always knew, I feel like he's poster board film in terms of popular culture, Spartacus. Yeah. So my, my personal relationship with him is a film called uh, The Bad and the Beautiful. 
it's a proper good like studio era film oh yeah, yeah. Uh, almost comments on it because he's like quite an unscrupulous like producer yeah. and he's it's very sort of last tycoon isn't it yeah uh, and in terms of that era and how he very much the poster boy of that era because of his longevity it's uh, it's what I tie him to personally it's one of my favourites because mm. he's done such a breadth I've, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I've said if I've seen more than three or four, it's definitely a thing I need to pursue more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things like the Vikings, which I think you produced. Yeah. Gunfighter, the OK Corral. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I love me westerns. Yeah. I love all retellings of the Gunfighter, the OK Corral. He was Doc Corral, Holiday, Tombstone, etc. Yeah. He was Doc Holiday in that, and that for me was the definitive version of that story. Yeah. Sunday afternoon TV when mm. I was a kid was basically old movies, like three o'clock in the afternoon on BBC Two. And he could play dark. He could play dark as well. Uh, and, you know, as I said, uh, Ace in the Hole, where he's, he is a, a, an unlikable and savoury character, but he, he's, again, he's so charismatic in it. And I surprised Scott with a bit of trivia about um, the character of Spartacus, that he played the character of Spartacus in an episode of Xena Warrior Princess. I feel you like see, I... this is not only a great <laughs> podcast for film geeks, it's an educational podcast. <laughs> so we're going to round off the news this week just by talking, we're at the end of the awards season with the big one happening. And... Because some people will hear this after the events, we're not going to predict what the winners are. That would be pointless. We'd be wrong, and we'd be like going through time. Um, but would we? I, wa- I want to just like pick out pick out some of the key key awards and have our feelings of who we think out of the categories should win in each of those. Is this like a quick fire round. But before that, I just want to mention that the Oscars um, Twitter account had a bit of a, a problem this week because they've been doing this thing that you can direct message the Oscars Twitter account with what your predictions are and you get sent back like an image with all your nomination, all your predictions for who's going to win so that you can put it on your feed. There was a glitch in it that meant that they were posting some of them out from their own feed and people were like, are they telling us who's won the Oscars <laughs> a week oh, early? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was apparently just a glitch. But let's have a quick look over. So best picture, I mean, I've seen all but one of these. So we've got Ford versus Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Does everyone do the same thing with us? I've seen three of this, but does everyone do the same thing when, let's say you've seen three? You you really root for them like you have any context. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's part of that. I, I think 1917, um, if it's a good Oscar favourite. I think... For the Voting Academy, would be very surprised if Joker... I know Joker did incredibly well at the BAFTAs, much more so than I think anyone expected. But I do think the joke, Joker is a slightly little bit less conservative for the Oscars, and, and BAFTAs embrace that a little bit more. So I'm going to go with 1917. I would be shocked if Joker won. I think it's going to get a lot... It's going to get the Performance Award with Joaquin yes. Phoenix, personally, I think... And it'll get probably a few side things and they'll consider that it's box ticked. I'd be shocked if 1917 didn't win personally. Because the only ones I've seen is Jojo Rabbit, which, whilst that's got loads going for it, I, I, I don't think yeah, it's, it's not conservative it? enough. No. For, uh, for the... And The Irishman, I, I fully enjoyed, but I could point you to five better Scorsese films. Yeah. yeah. So which one would you pick? I, I, I think 1917 is winning. Personally, out of the three I've seen... Up the biggest smile for Jojo Rabbit, I think, in a weird way. I mean, I've seen all but Little Women. Up until this morning, 1917 was my favourite. Marriage Story has just stolen that because I watched it this morning. Can't wait to see it. And I was just, within five minutes, I was caught up in this portrayal of a relationship falling apart. And I was was close to tears 
at multiple points through the film, it's impacted on me on such a huge way. Mm. Uh, that's that's now my personal favourite. Whether it'll win it, I don't know, but that's that's what I would have picked. Uh, directing then, so we don't we don't always go with the best director gives the best picture. So we've got The Irishman, Joker, nineteen seventeen, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. I'm not going to give a definitive one. I think it's between Parasite and Sam Mendes for nineteen seventeen. With nineteen seventeen, a part, part, big part of its gimmick is sort of the the invisible cuts and the long takes and the amount of planning, choreography, and to to be as unsettling and impactful as I keep hearing, and with those sort of stunts, surely that's got to get you a director's gong at the. Oh. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I personally feel that nineteen seventeen is the deserving one of that one. It's so well put together. It's, you know, it's light, it's a pretty simple story, but it's all about the presentation. And that's where the directing award should be going as far as I'm concerned. Best actor. So you've got Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory, Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver in Mad Marriage Story. And I think you can see where I'm going. <laughs> uh, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker and Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. I'm going to straight away say Adam Driver, let's see him get an award. That guy is an amazing actor. Uh, you know, everything that he's in, he always stands out in. But in Marriage Story, he is absolutely phenomenal. I'd like to say Adam Driver, but I think Joaquin Phoenix. It's going to be Joaquin Phoenix. It's got to be the most... It's a showy performance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's very... So, actress Cynthia Erivo in Harriet. Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story. I can never pronounce her name right. R-C-R-Z-R-O. Yeah, we'll go with that. Little In Little Women. Charlize Theron in Bombshell. And Rennie Zellweger in Judy. I think the Oscars have a tendency to go for for Judy, I think, because it's that kind of an Oscar-worthy film. Personally, I'd like to see it for Harriet. And if there's uh, just a, about a level of... She's a great actress. I'm watching yeah. her currently at this moment in time in, in The Outsider. But I think uh, for the sake of diversity, and I mean that in a very positive way, um, I think it deserves to be her. And I think... I think the Rennie Zellweger is just an obvious choice because the Oscar Oscar voters like like a biopic. Yeah. I don't necessarily, and it's it's it, when does it stop being a performance and become an impression? Yeah. So I'd like to see Harriet win for that one. Uh, far be it for me to suggest the Academy's quite political and uh, thinks about these things, but I won't be surprised to see Siozzi uh, Ronan win it for Little Women to kind of assuage that um, criticism of the quote-unquote snubbery of little women in other... Big and that women. happened at the BAFTAs. Yeah. yeah. If if Johansson was in there for Jojo Rabbit, I'd have picked her. I think that's a stronger performance in that that she does than what she does in Marriage Story. She's great in Marriage Story, but I think she that wasn't her best film that year. Charlie's Theron, for me, in Bombshell, absolutely right. caught my attention. I, was, I, I thought that she was absolutely marvellous in it. It's a great film. And I think she it would be nice to see her get the um, award on that one. And let's uh, just finish with um, animated feature because we love cartoons. Well, we're, uh, we're highly animated, the three so the of us anyway. The animated ones, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, I Lost My Body, which I've not seen, Brilliant. Klaus, Missing Link and Toy Story 4. Well, the, the good money would be on Toy Story 4, but I'd like to see, I think I Lost My Body is a fantastic film. It's beautifully animated, but it might be just too, too left of centre. I'd like to see Missing Link because I think the studio are doing some fantastic work. Missing Link strikes me as the most interesting choice there because Toy Story 4, that had a 
bigger uphill than we give it credit for because it's trying to not be this irrelevant epilogue to a great trilogy and, and it had a lot of heart and an and ending for all the characters and how to train your dragon is always fun but it didn't bring anything yeah, new to the genre no, it? it's it's it, it flatters it to just be there doesn't it so i, I i'd like to see missing link because i think that's got more interesting stuff going on i'm with you on missing link i absolutely adored that film and think it was a crime that it didn't perform at the box office yeah um, maybe if if it does win maybe it'll get a resurgence of interest yeah. But it, it, uh, you know, like you say, that studio delivers such amazing animation, stop motion animation. I love the little things that they put over the end credits, showing them building the scenes yeah. up. Oh, yeah. And you just see the level of detail that they go to. It's such a funny film. Oh, yeah. Interesting to see Klaus in there. Yeah. Which I liked. I saw, I did see it at Christmas as a, a straight to Netflix. I think it was a Spanish co production. Uh, it had a really nice animation style, whether it's Oscar worthy. I don't know. That's an interesting point, but it's uh, it was straight to Netflix, and it had a it had a really really luscious look to it, an almost old Disney style, but done in uh, uh, done in the computer clearly. But uh, interesting to see Klaus in there. I wouldn't have put it an Oscar worthy film, even though I thought it was very good. And another example of um, the impact that Netflix is having on yes. award seasons now. This three yeah. films spring to mind. Oh, the past then. few years, it's just been a little trickle, but now it seems that pretty much every category is getting something Netflix. In there. Well, you've got the wealth of movies like Roma. Of course, The Irishman, I think, is, a, is for, for all its faults, and, and I agree with you, it's not the Scorsese masterpiece compared to even Casino. It, it's, it's unleashed something. It's a real big gun mm-hmm. for Netflix, and it's a game changer for them. That's this weekend. Obviously, we're recording just before it. I'm, I'm sitting up awake, as I do every year, to watch the awards. Uh, do either of you guys ever sit awake and watch it, or do you just catch the? I have done when I've had to do broadcasts on it the next day, when I get called in at seven o'clock and go, "Can you talk about the Oscars?" Uh, nowadays, I have a tendency just to to pick the highlights of them, uh, and 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 the, when La La Land was nearly best picture, I was I was all over the press for that one. That was a great night for like, because it's me and my brother in law who sit and watch it together. He's popping round again this year, and. He was rooting for La La Land for the best picture. I was rooting for Moonlight. So when they announced La La Land won, and I was like, oh, well done, mate. Oh, they, yeah, well, fair enough. I, I, I didn't dislike the film. We both loved both films, but we had our favourites. And then when it was like, no, no, Moonlight's won, and I was like, ha ha, in your face. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to see there's no rivalry or anything. Like that. If you're interested in getting involved with the programme in some minor way, because we'd like you to, you can tweet us uh, during the Oscar ceremony. Let us know how it's going and what your predictions are. And uh, keep in touch with us with any questions, anything you want to ask us, as long as it's not overly personal and it's mainly about film, then we are happy to chat to you on our Twitter account, which is... At Filmfile UK, which, as Lee said, will be active during the Oscars, as it is every year. Um, so if you do follow us and you have us on like on notifications and you're trying to get some sleep, it might be worth just taking the notifications off I'll overnight. Be <laughs> but by all means, if you're staying awake to watch it, tweet your thoughts to me. I will love to interact with you all and discuss, as always. And you can find us on all your favourite podcast platforms. And if you're a big fan and you'll enjoy the show, subscribe. If you're not a big fan, subscribe anyway, because we could just do with the numbers. Tell all your friends, because you know what? It makes us happy. And at this point in the programme, let's talk reviews. So before we get round to the main review, there's a lot of films out at the moment and there's a lot of things worth seeing either at the big screen or on the small screen. So let's just do a quick 
whiz through of some things that we've not got around to talking about because they've just been out of our schedule, but we've had a chance to see. So Uncut Gems. Have either of you guys seen Uncut Gems yet? It's Adam Sandler? No. Top of my watch list. It's on the watch list, which is the ever-growing watch list. It seems to be a very divisive film. I've seen some people like rating it one out of five and saying it's a, it's just a, a shouty mess. I absolutely loved it. It's fast-paced, it's erratic, and yes, everyone's shouting over each other in that New York way that people do when they're arguing. And Sandler gives a fantastic performance throughout. It's it, it's made it that there's now five Sandler films that I have time for. Things you would never have thought you'd ever say. Well, the other four are interesting. Waterboy's one of them. I feel like reaching over the table. <laughs> <laughs> My other four are... Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love. Jack and Jill are one film. You can't count them twice. <laughs> <laughs> Cruising for a bruising, mate. <laughs> Rain Over Me. Funny People. Um, which I thought was very daring because he's basically playing himself. I liked Funny People. The Mayorowitz stories. Oh, yeah. And this makes oh, okay. the fifth one. Yeah. I don't rate his comedies. I feel that... Oh, were they comedies? I feel, I feel that in, <laughs> funny, in funny People, when he's playing this act, one stand-up comic who's now a big name yeah. in the cinema and all his films are just mediocre comedies because people are playing to pander to his attentions rather than creating good scripts, he was representing himself. That was him. And that's why I love that film because he was he was opening himself up. And saying I'm a jerk. Yeah. However, I did rate his um, Netflix stand-up special last year. I absolutely adored that. I thought that that's what he perfect, he's perfect at, stand-up comedy. I just don't like his films with comedy. When he does acting, he can deliver. He can, it's like a lot of comedians that got that ability and, and, and the, sort of the way that they present their humour, they've got that good dark side. You know, when Robin Williams went into playing darker characters like uh, One Hour Photo, they did it so well because they've got something about them. They're charismatic and they've got that... They, they can portray that dark side very, very well. What else have you got for us? Uh, so we both got to see Rhythm Section. Yeah, which is uh, the film that I was going to mention earlier that, that bombed for Paramount last weekend. Why did it bomb? I thought it was a pretty good film. Yeah, I mean, uh, my only criticism of it, and I've mentioned this to Scott, is that it felt like it was a sky a drama bit. more than anything else. And the first half of the film is a bit like it, things just jump forwards and jump forwards and jump forwards without any flow. But it gets to the midpoint of the film. And it suddenly becomes like compelling, gripping and tension building. So if you don't know it, it's Blake Lively. She plays a, a British character. It's based on a series of books by the guy who wrote the screenplay. Uh, and I, and it's produced by, by Barbara Broccoli. So it felt to me like it was almost like the pilot to see if we've got a franchise going here. And I think the hope was that they, they had. I think Blake Lively was fantastic in it. She really underplayed it. She goes from someone who's rock bottom to someone who's fiercely independent and sure of herself. So she becomes uh, an assassin. She's trained by Jude Law, who I thought stole the movie. I thought okay. he was the heart of the movie. And it's a, it's a very realistic journey that she goes on. It's not instantly she becomes Jason Bourne, a female Jason Bourne. There's, it's not an easy route, and that's the, the heart of the film. It's a little bit of a, a predictable uh, storyline as far as regards it's a revenge film with some nice twists and turns, but... It, it, it was kind of underplayed a lot and that underplaying meant there was no sort of huge gravitas scene to it. And I think what really killed it, what really killed it was the title because you mention it to anybody, it doesn't sound like an assassin movie. I know it's based on the first novel and, and it's the title of the first novel. And if you're a fan of that, then great. But 
it, it didn't sell it because I think it's, you know, you see it on a billboard and, and it's been undersold as yeah. far as trailers went and the poster went to give it an idea. This is an assassin movie. But if I didn't know anything, I'd thought it was some orchestral drama. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought when I saw the poster yeah. and, it, and it, it didn't sell it. So it's a shame. We're not going to see a sequel to it, but it might be interesting. You know, nowadays, good characters don't stay dead. There's always a life for them on Amazon or on it. A beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Can't wait to see it. For me, it's good. But I think that we don't have an association with Mr Rogers in the UK. No. So you're watching a film about a cynical journalist who has his life changed while he's interviewing Mr Rogers. And all the things that he sees as negative in his life, he starts to embrace the positives and trying to make amends for like his wrongdoings and yet he's falling out with his father and things like that and the poor relationship. And it's more a story about the journalist, how he's changed by Mr. Rogers. But I think we need to understand who Mr. Rogers is yeah. for us to be able to appreciate in the UK. In the US, everyone grew up with him. It'd be similar to like a childhood icon from like when we were kids. Well, they are working on a John Noakes movie, I've really. <laughs> uh, the the, the problem we've got in this it. country is if, if they do one based on someone from our childhood, no doubt there comes a part in it that he turns into a creep. Yes. And we all turn against him. And all the way through Beautiful the Day in the Neighbourhood, that cynical part of me was expecting some dark, disturbing revelation about Mr. Rogers. But no, he was a genuinely nice guy. And I can't embrace that because I like I like my heroes when I was a kid to have turned me into a very cynical adult because they would turned out to be, well, let's be honest, a bit too touchy-feely. A bit too savile. Can we say that? Is that I mean, too soon? Rolf Harris is the one that like, I would directly compare that up until a few years ago, like, he was still very much beloved to all the UK. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, not Rolf. I mean, Jimmy Savile, let's be honest, you looked at him in the 70s and yes. you go, yeah, there's something wrong with him. Do you think we'll ever get like a, a, a ponderous drama about the Chuckle Brothers? <laughs> you know, Netflix are, are always looking for new content. I, I was in the States and, and um, during the 80s a lot and, and Mr. Rogers was an icon and mm. I'd never heard of him. So I was, I have some awareness of who he was, he was and he is, he is iconic and... Uh, I don't think we have an equivalent, but you know, people like you know, or at least TV series like Jack and Ori and that sort of thing. It was that it was very gentle, very gentle uh, uh, TV. Parasite finally got its UK release. A Bong Joon Ho's black comedy, which focuses on a poor family who struggle to keep afloat, who one by one manipulate themselves into employment by a wealthy family, pretending to have qualifications that they don't. It takes a sinister turn on the second act, and goes in completely unexpected directions by the end of it in the typical way that you expect Bong Joon-ho's films to do. It I, sounds like my life story, to be I, honest. I absolutely love this film. It's compelling. It's comical. The commentary on the class divide is so well done. Brilliant film. Well worth checking out. I don't want to talk too much about it because spoilers, spoilers, spoilers with something like this. But it's a great film. If, if you're one of these people who goes, oh, but subtitles, just go watch it. Enjoy it. Because... I, I, I've not met anyone yet who's turned around and gone, eh, it was You okay. miss out so much when you have that, that attitude. Uh, we finally got Lighthouse in the UK as well. We briefly mentioned it last time, but we didn't want to touch on it much because it wasn't actually out. Uh, aging Lighthouse Keeper training up a rookie on an isolated island. The pair don't click from the start and things get progressively worse as their relationship and sanity begins to break more and more. It's a stunning two-man film. The performances from both the actors, is it just draws you in. The 4-3 framing that they've done it in, in black and white as well, Keeps it close means that there's nothing distracting you on the edge of your peripheral. You've focused purely on these characters and you are trapped in that lighthouse with them as they're going steadily insane over drinking, uh, well, 
they're drinking anything that they can get their hands on by the end of the film. Absolutely brilliant. It's a stunningly artistic, but also a very tension-filled, claustrophobic and rather twisted tale. Well worth checking out. Which leads us... To our prime feature. To our prime feature this week. Are we ready? Sure. It's time for Gotham to meet the birds of prey. I own Gotham. He's building an army. Unless we all want to die, we're going to have to work together. Hi, boys. I thought she was just a pretty face. Nothing gets a guy's attention like violence. Birds of Prey and Harley Quinn. Do that for me, will you? (gasps) Now, this was going to be the first time that all three of us have seen a film. (laughs) I got stuck on a motorway trying to get home last night and I was only 20 odd minutes out of town and there was either roadworks or some sort of incident and I just couldn't get off the motorway and I'm seeing the clock tick tick down. It was like a a typical Hitchcockian scene. (laughs) No! So highly disappointed. Guys, fill me in. Tell me about... The Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. I've had the, the one. <laughs> I feel like the title needs to be long. <laughs> it's not long enough. So, for those who don't know, or if your your geekism isn't isn't comics, Harley Quinn was a character that actually appeared on Batman the Animated Series, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Um, who, who developed a cult of her own uh, through the comics. A great comic uh, actually pulled in his uh, Mad Love, which is which is brilliant read. Yeah. Uh, and then she's become a um, an almost an, more of an icon for the image of, of Harley Quinn, as opposed to the character herself, I think. Uh, a little bit like Deadpool did, in a yeah, way that sort of the mythos around the character became more interesting than the character themselves. And of course, when she got brought to the big screen with uh, uh, Margot Robbie playing her in Suicide Squad, she basically stole the movie. Um, we could talk about Suicide Squad for minutes. Um, <laughs> but she was the highlight of the film and therefore had some sort of future uh, future career uh, as, a, as, a, as a spin-off character. And that brings us up to Birds of Prey. So, Scott, you're the big DC well, fan. Well, I think the the better moments of Suicide Squad and, and the parts they promised and the parts you hoped they'd lean on was that more sort of punk rock, anarchic side of this sort of ensemble villain team. And it... For whatever reasons, everyone's got a different theory. Uh, it didn't quite get that tone right because it's mishmashing. We are more serious and DCEU, whatever take. But this is exactly the tone I originally hoped for with the Suicide Squad film. It's it's punk rock. It's anarchic. It's character led in its anarchy, and it's just fun and colourful and brash. And all right, there's not much layers in it if you put a, if you if you want to cut it open, but it's just fun, and you like the characters do the talking, be themselves, and create everything that happens on screen, narratively, um, scenario wise, and so not every joke lands, but the just feel of the fun, the film is just overriding fun and joy, and you, you sense a love, so where, and you can't help but gravitate to one of the characters because you throw enough stuff at a wall. I think Ewan McGregor as a Roman Sionis Black Mask is wonderful. <laughs> See, um, yeah, I'm not overly familiar with Black Mask, uh, not being like heavily versed in the DC mythologies. How, do you, think villain, the re- how yeah. do you think the representation of him 
was he's, in the he, he's like quite a lot of B and C list Batman villain. He's, he's, he's an idea that can be fleshed. So it, his original idea is just you know he's a he's a rich guy who moons like moonlights as a mob boss who's got some issues because he's wearing a black mask made of his mother's coffin. Whereas this goes for a more quirky sort of um, what do you call it? Spoil sort of gets everything he wants can't understand he's not the centre of the universe sort of person and plays up the comedy of the character and adds a yeah, bit it, of flesh to his bones. It, it definitely draws on the whole, like, he wants to be in charge of everything and he owns people and he yeah. owns them and she belongs to me and he belongs to me all the way through it. He chews the scenery throughout and he's marvellous. Do you want uh, to give us a quick rundown on the plot? So the plot is, the, it's a MacGuffin plot. It's narrated by Harley Quinn. They start, so they have the unreliable It narrator. starts off, she talks about the breakup, breakup of her and Joker and how she's getting past it. And then it jumps forwards in time and then it goes, oh, no, I've gone too far forwards. And then she goes back and backtracks to fill in some of the gaps. The MacGuffin is a diamond that is being sought by multiple people. And it's all about all the stories of all the different people as they intertwine and intersect to get this diamond for one reason or another. Whilst Harley basically takes a young girl under her wing to um, shelter her from the harm that she could get to. That it's a very similar to Deadpool. I mean, Deadpool is the perfect yeah, like comparison yeah. here because there wasn't much of a story there. It's more about the journey through it and how everyone interacts, going along it and jumping backwards and forwards. And definitely like similar to Deadpool in the use of graphic violence in a comedic nature. There's not a lot that you can touch on story wise without actually dropping some pretty heavy handed spoilers for some of the nice little twists that it does take. I will go on record to say that when Birds of Prey was first announced, I was excited. Then it became a Harley Quinn movie, and I lost a bit of interest. I mean, I remember talking to you about yeah. it, that I was like, oh, it doesn't have to be a Harley Quinn movie. And all my fears of it being a Harley Quinn movie were there on the screen, but I thoroughly loved it because it was a Harley Quinn movie, introducing the Birds of Prey. Is this, do you think, for Margot Robbie, the sort of the, the role that she will now always be associated with. Has she, has she done what Ryan Reynolds did with Deadpool and just the, the two of us? She owns it. She she completely owns the role. She, I mean, she was behind the production of this as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was, in the same way that Ryan Reynolds like was behind the production on Deadpool and campaigning for it to get made, she's done the same with this and she wants to do the same going forwards with other projects with Harley Quinn. She clearly loves the role and because she's the narrator of this story, You've got, similar to what we have with Joker, where it's an unreliable narrator, some of the events are so fantastical. It's like, wow, this is what it's like to be in Harley's mind. Yeah. And there's a, I mean, you've seen it in the trailer. There's a, a little Diamonds Are Girls Best Friend number. And it's only a very short segment when she's basically hallucinating this whole thing. And it's so well played. And it, it, you just sit there chuckling and wanting to watch that one scene again just to see the, the little nods that it's doing in it. It's... it's like you said, it's it's a punk rock kind of music video kind of aesthetic that Suicide Squad tried to get. But because this has been built from the ground up with that in mind, yeah, exactly, it yeah. feels better about it and it flows with it. There's, there's like character names pop up on screen when they get introduced and like little reasons why people hate Harley coming up at the bottom of the screen and loads of little gimmicks and all that. And it's it's just fun to watch. It's so much fun. I belly laughed multiple times through the film and when I wasn't belly laughing I had a big beaming smile on my face I loved it from start to finish and the action once again we get John Wick style of action where the camera is backing off and letting you see the choreography going Excellent. on and it's marvellous choreography there's some 
fight scenes with like about 14 or 15 different people all interacting at some point in the scene. And you're never at any moment confused as to what's going on. You're always following everything. Even the, even the stupid things like, when did you get time to change your shoes? I've just thrown in there and just go, hey, I don't care. This is fun. Absolutely great film. It looks amazing. She is front and centre owning this whole thing. And the birds of prey getting introduced into it. it it's... It's like an origin story for the birds of prey, where the birds of prey aren't the origin story. Right. And it's only toward, like, towards the back end of the film that it's like, oh, now they're starting to come together. Just the, So the last point on this, does it tie in to what started out as the greater DC universe? I um, This is what I found weirdly most heartening, because obviously it continues in the vein of the more fun, self-contained, new DC direction. But this film's not ashamed of the fact it's a Suicide Squad spin-off. Right. It's quite open and bold about the fact this is not your first introduction to Harley Quinn and all that is quote-unquote canon, but doesn't lean on it, doesn't doesn't ask you to go and watch it even, just just accepts it's part of it and moves on, which is the best of both worlds and... It's what we've said on an earlier episode that, you know, DC uh, seems to be taking this approach now of each film as an individual film modelled around the characters that it's showing. So Joker was a dark drama. This is a fun, frenetic action film with like a really good sense of humour. Aquaman was pure comic book entertainment. Shazam was heart. They're all making them specific for the characters with the little nods to tie them together to each other loosely. They're not doing that force. I mean, like or hate what Zack Snyder was doing, yeah, he was doing a forced narrative. He mm. was like pushing it in one direction and making it that you had to have really seen the previous film in order to enjoy the next one. They're all individual films now. And if you watch them all, you'll see little links between them, but you don't need to be embroiled in the whole lot of the mythology in order to appreciate each of the films. Well, that's how Marvel started. Or yeah. At least ease the way into the idea of the greater narrative and then, and then you can get more clever. And just... it's how comic books as an art form are presented. Mm. Yes. You can read Amazing Spider-Man and not know anything about the Avengers until Captain America pops up in Amazing Spider-Man, and you never feel that you've really missed out on part of the story because of it, because you're following this character. That's how it should be, and that's where DC are going right at the moment. I want this to be a huge success, because I don't want Warners to start second-guessing themselves again and backing off and starting to meddle behind the scenes and interfere with the creators, because clearly they are letting the creators have more control now. And this is where This is what we get from it, an absolutely exciting film. That I, as soon as we finished watching it, I wanted to go straight back in and watch it again. It's like an adult cartoon, isn't it? Yes. So that's Birds of Prey. The Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. I'm glad you said that. And that's playing in all cinemas right now across the country. Hey, across the world, but we don't know how far we reach. So at this point in the programme, we always go around the table and say, uh, what's your neat thing? What have you been doing? What are you reading, seeing, watching, playing with or playing a game? Well, it's quite on point. I've been watching the Harley Quinn animated show that's uh, exclusive to the DC Universe streaming app, and that is very much an adult cartoon in its very conception. <laughs> it's really it's really irreverent, it's really funny, and it just makes parody characters out of every Batman-affiliated or DC-affiliated character it comes across, and it's just raucously funny. Uh, I've, I've got an, my girlfriend who's not doesn't care anything. She has no grace about the superhero genre of any kind. She loves it. She makes. She insists we watch it. Next one, next one. <laughs> it's just really funny, and it's got it's got a neat voice. 
Um, I, I recommend that to anyone, uh, any Harley Quinn fan, or maybe a converted one from the film. Andy? For me, recently, Netflix in the UK have started putting the Studio Ghibli films on there. Their first wave of them, which includes things like uh, My Neighbour Totoro, absolutely love that film, Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, Castle and Sky, Porco Rosso, has landed. The next wave will be landing in a couple of weeks, and then at the beginning of April, the final wave will be landed. If you've never delved into Ghibli films, now's the perfect opportunity. They are marvellous. Anyone of any age can embrace them, and they are beautifully animated fantasy stories. I can totally agree with that. I've not actually seen my one neat thing, but I can't wait. The day we recorded this, it lands on Netflix, and it's one of my uh, favourite comics. And and this seems to be when you say favourite comics and not graphic novels. It almost makes you say, oh, it's a comic, it's not a graphic novel. But this is, in every way, it is a comic. that is a series of uh, gathered into graphic novels, and that's Lock and Key, which uh, lands on Netflix today. As we record, and I've got not got round to watching it, but I can't wait. I love Lock and Key, uh, created by Joe uh, Joe Hill, who's uh, Stephen King's son. It's a fantastic story about a family who who suffer after the loss of their father. He's brutally murdered, and they move to the ancestral home, and they find keys which give magical powers uh, around the house. Various keys unlock a certain point, including your mind, and an evil demon who's after getting all the keys. I'm not sure how they've done it. I've heard very good things, including the fact that they are thinking about uh, season two straight away, even though it's just landed. But I can't wait to see Lock and Key on Netflix. And that's it for The Film File. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with lots more news, lots more reviews, and lots of geeky stuff. And you had me at hello. As of now, same bat time, same bat channel. I was going to do another one. <laughs> what can I do? I did that time, that time channel last time, didn't I? What's another? Oh, I got it, I got it, yeah.